Welcome to the Attention Deficit Disorder Expert Podcast Series by Attitude Magazine. Hello, this is Wayne Callen for Attitude Magazine. Today's webinar topic, How Brain Imaging Changes Everything, intrigues everyone who has a child with ADHD or who has been diagnosed as an adult. Many people have heard about brain scans in relation to ADHD and are curious about what can be learned from them. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Daniel G. Amen to explain it to us. Dr. Amen has done 90,000 brain scans at his clinics over many decades. A physician, double board certified psychiatrist, teacher, and nine-time New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Amen is the founder and medical director of Amen Clinics in Newport Beach in San Francisco, Bellevue, Washington, Reston, Virginia, Atlanta, and New York City. His latest book is Healing ADD. Welcome, Dr. Amen. Thank you so much. I am very excited to talk about this topic. It is something that's been near and dear to my heart for the last 23 years. And so I titled this talk, How Imaging Changes Everything. Um, I want to start with a question. And the question is, is if you knew a train was going to hit you, would you get out of the way? This is actually uh, a video from uh, USA Today a couple of weeks ago where two women are on a train track and they didn't know the train was going to hit them so they were going to have a hard time getting out of the way and what they ended up having to do was actually lay down flat on the tracks in the middle and they were not injured. But when I saw that, I thought so much about imaging and how imaging teaches you things that can actually help you get out of the way of the train that's going to hit you. In 1991, we started our work with brain SPECT imaging. SPECT looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how the brain works. SPECT is different than a CAT scan or an MRI. Those are anatomy studies. Um, it looks at function, at blood flow. Um, the image on the left is a healthy scan. The image on the right is a drug-affected scan. So the real reason not to use drugs is that they damage your brain. When you do imaging, that becomes very clear. In uh, 1991, when I started our imaging work, I scanned everybody I knew, including uh, my mother, my three children, um, my friends, and then myself. And the image on the left is my first scan. And if you see the bumpiness, it actually has a toxic look to it, which horrified me. I had meningitis when I was in the Army as a young soldier. And I had a lot of bad brain habits. And what you see with the image on the right is 20 years later, my brain actually looks fatter, fuller, and it looks younger because I fell in love with my brain and started to do the right things for it. One of the questions is, how would I know about the health of my brain unless I actually looked? Ultimately, imaging changed everything in my children's lives uh, because it became the rule in my house that if you dated any of my daughters for four months, then you had to get scanned 
because I wanted to know about the health of your brain and if you would be good for my daughters. So it's uh, some people have actually described it as meet the meet the parents, but worse. Um, I joke that imaging changed everything in my love life. Uh, when I met Tana, my wife, um, I really liked her, and the most important part of her that I wanted to see was her brain. So two and a half weeks after we met, and she was a really great sport. She's a neurosurgical ICU nurse. I said, hey, can we scan you? Uh, which we did. She had a beautiful brain, and we were married several years later. Um, so to, to be a little bit more serious, uh, imaging completely changed the work I did with my patients. The current psychiatric model I'm not a fan of, because what it is, is you go and tell the doctor your symptoms. He gives you a diagnosis, often by the same name of the symptoms that you told him, such as you're depressed, I'm depressed, oh, you're depressed, here, take medicine for depression. Oh, you have attentional problems, oh, you have attention deficit disorder, or ADHD, take a stimulant. But the model's not very effective. If you believe Tom Insull from the National Institute of Mental Health, he actually wrote a paper in 2009 that said psychiatric outcomes really are no better than they were in the 1950s. Um, we have no better stimulant than Ritalin, no better antidepressant than amipramine, no more effective antipsychotic than Thorazine. Those were all 1950 medications. Um, and if you believe the new research on large-scale studies that antidepressants work no better than placebos and that stimulants can actually cause more problems than they're worth. Now, this is not an anti-medication talk because I think medications can save people's lives when they're targeted properly. And it's one of the things that SCANS taught us is that psychiatric problems are not single or simple disorders. They all have multiple types that require their own treatments. And that is why when you look at large-scale studies on antidepressants or on stimulants, that their long-term effectiveness is not very good because we're not targeting medication or other treatments to individual people's brains, we're targeting them to large groups. So um, next bullet point. Uh, so I often think of giving someone the diagnosis of depression is very much like giving them the diagnosis of chest pain. It just has too many causes. And in my books, I've written about seven types of anxiety and depression, six types of addicts, five types of overeaters, and probably my most popular book after Change Your Brain, Change Your Life is Healing ADD, where I talk about seven different types of ADD. Scans really help us see the underlying biology of our patients so that we stop guessing and stop hurting people. So for example, you can take someone who has ADHD or autism, depression, um, sometimes their brains are overactive, sometimes their brains are underactive, sometimes their brains look toxic, perhaps because of substance abuse or because of an environmental toxin, sometimes their brains are traumatic. One of the biggest things we've learned is that mild traumatic brain injuries can ruin people's lives and nobody knows about it. 
So on these images, the rainbow-looking ones are showing areas of underactivity. The red, white, and blue ones are showing areas of overactivity. In a healthy scan, the back part of the brain is active. Everything else is relatively quiet. So imaging, you know, why I got hooked on imaging is I could now see targets to go after to help with my patients. But a huge benefit with imaging is that it decreased stigma. The patients saw their problems now as medical and not moral. It decreased shame and guilt. It increased the family's uh, sense of forgiveness and compassion. We have nothing else in psychiatry that's this powerful or this immediate. The images on the right are of a boy who had paranoid schizophrenia, and he came to see us. He wouldn't take medication until he saw a scan, and then he looked at the really severely low activity scan and said, can you help me? And on medication, three weeks later, his brain was much healthier. Imaging really completely changes the discussion around mental health because, quite frankly, nobody wants to see a psychiatrist. No one wants to be labeled as abnormal or as a psychiatric patient, but all of us want better brains. And so uh, I've thought a lot about what if mental health was really brain health. And I have this picture of Robin Williams here because you know I was just so saddened by him taking his life. And people in the ADD community have thought about him as having ADD, in fact, the opening scene from Mrs. Doubtfire. Whenever I lecture about adult ADD, I'll often play that scene because it is just classic for people who have ADD. But if you think about his risk factors that are well-known publicly, the issues with addictions, I showed you what an addict's brain looked like, addictions damage the brain. He had open-heart surgery. Uh, a number of years ago, we know now that that damages the brain, that the lack of oxygen that goes with it can cause terrible mood swings, that depression is often associated with abnormal activity in the brain, and aging. As we age, the brain gets less and less active. And if you take all of those things and then combine it with financial problems or with the, a loss, like the loss of a new show, you see those stock stresses can be one of the reasons why he lost hope and at least reportedly killed himself. Um, but what if he saw this really as a brain reclamation project to reclaim the act, good activity in his brain? My sense is, and this is based on thousands of patients we work with at Amen Clinics, that he would have done better. Imaging really has changed everything about our health. There are 200 studies now that say as your weight goes up, the size and function of your brain goes down, which I think should just scare the fat off anyone. It is the biggest brain drain in the history of the United States with two-thirds of us overweight, one-third obese. If you're in the overweight category, that means your BMI is between 25 and 30, you actually have 4% less brain tissue, and eight your brain looks eight years older than healthy people. If you're in the obese category, you actually have 8% less brain volume, and your brain looks 16 years older than healthy people. 
I've coined the term called the dinosaur syndrome, big body, little brain, you don't want to be extinct. Now, some of you might think that's rude, and I certainly did when I thought it up, when it came to me one day on a plane, but it motivates people to get healthy. I have so many stories of people come up to me and they go, I don't want to be a dinosaur, I lost 100 pounds. Imaging helps to identify early Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Most people don't know that ADD is actually a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. It triples your risk for it. Alzheimer's all by itself is expected to triple in the next 25 years. There's no cure for it on the horizon. And it affects 50% of people 85 and older. And the really horrifying thing that we've learned in the last decade or so is Alzheimer's disease does not start when your symptoms start. It actually starts in your brain 30 to 50 years before you have any symptoms. So if you knew a train was going to hit you, would you get out of the way? A lot of people say, well, I don't want to know if I have it. So when do you think treatment works? Really, really early or late? So here is a 59-year-old woman who has Alzheimer's disease. Odds are she had trouble in her brain in her 20s. And if we would have known about it, could we have put her on a different path? So I actually think all of us should be scanned by the time we're 50 because treatment works early and not late. And if you really want to prevent Alzheimer's disease, it's critical to prevent all the illnesses that are associated with it, such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity, low testosterone levels, heart surgery, untreated ADD, untreated depression, past addictions. And what imaging has done for me as a clinician, it shows me when I really have to go after rehabilitating someone's brain. And it really does not allow for denial. Imaging changed everything for the NFL. It broke their denial. When we started, we did the big NFL study. Uh, we scanned and treated 140 active and retired NFL players. And at the time we started, the NFL was in den denial. And the reason that upset me is because if you don't admit you have a problem, you can't do anything to solve it. Players were left without hope. And our work helped to look at traumatic brain injury in a completely new way. Uh, we published this study in the American Psychiatric Journal, uh, the Journal of Neuropsychiatry, and what we found was high levels of damage in players. So the blue areas are significantly uh, areas of significant low activity. They were virtually everywhere. Now, the fact that playing football in the NFL is a brain-damaging sport, I actually think most thoughtful nine-year-olds would figure that out. But what did surprise us and was really exciting for us is we found that brain rehabilitation is possible. You are not stuck with the brain you have. You can make it better. better. We also published this study that showed that 80% of our players could show improvement on a brain-smart program, diet, supplements, exercise, avoiding things that hurt their brain, doing things that help their brain. And so we're really excited about this particular concept. But it really goes with a concept that's underlined my work for a long time, which is you're not stuck with the brain you have. You can make it better, and we can prove it. Um, imaging really changes the concept of aging. We did a study with 8,000 
people. And what we found is that over time, your brain just gets less and less active. And I turned 60 a couple of weeks ago, and I just hate that. Uh, but, next slide, what we found is it doesn't have to be that way. So, for example, here's a typical 82-year-old on the left. It's my friend Doris Rapp on the right, who's 82, and she's got a stunningly beautiful brain because she has worked on taking care of it. Imaging shows us that you can literally change your brain and change your life. My favorite story uh, through the years is of my daughter, my oldest daughter, Brienne, who is beautiful and sweet, but the truth is I never thought she was very smart. She had trouble in school, and I got her help and worked with her, but in 10th grade she fell apart, got depressed. And when I scanned her, we saw overall low activity in her brain, and I was just horrified because I didn't know she was living with that. And 24 hours later, uh, on some medication, her brain was much better. And she had never gotten even one A in her life, and for the next 10 years, got straight A's and got into perhaps the best veterinarian school in the world at the University of Edinburgh. And it, the treatment changing her brain dramatically changed her life. So ultimately, you know, looking at these scans, which one is yours? And which brain do you want? And the question that I ask myself every day when I deal with patients, how would I ever know what to do with my patient unless I looked? Imaging changes everything. Well, we have lots of questions, Dr. Raymond, so I'll start in. I'd like to get as many answers as possible. Have you seen anything in the brain scans of perimenopausal ADHD women that suggests how ADHD interacts with hormone changes? My ADHD symptoms have gotten a great deal worse since my hormone levels started changing. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I actually wrote a book called Unleash the Power of the Female Brain, and there's a whole chapter in it on ADHD in women. And um, so women typically um, don't get diagnosed as frequently, get diagnosed later because they're not as much of a pain in the neck. They, you know, they don't have as many behavioral issues. They often get misdiagnosed as lazy or as willful. Um, and when people with ADD try to concentrate, their brain shuts off rather than on. So many types of ADD show low activity in the front part of the brain. What happens when people go through menopause or even perimenopause is with lower estrogen levels, there's actually lower blood flow to the brain. So what could have been a mild case of ADD that really didn't require much uh, treatment except maybe some dietary changes, supplements, and exercise, now all of a sudden, People are 48 and they have a raging case of ADD. And what I recommend is bioidentical hormones can be very helpful, like really helpful. Um, along that same lines, what most people don't know is before menopause, 10 years before menopause, so late 30s, early 40s, um, progesterone starts, starts to drop. Progesterone is the hormone that helps you feel calm, peaceful, happy, and relaxed. And so all of a sudden, you're 41, you can't sleep, you're agitated, you're anxious, and now you find yourself drinking more, going to the doctor, taking Xanax, taking um, 
sleeping pills, and you're like, what the heck? And getting your hormones tested, usually day 19 to 21, and if your progesterone's low, then progesterone replacement can be incredibly helpful. So that's a really great question. Is there a specific age that is ideal for SPECT scanning? Uh, are, are you ever too young or too old? You know, for little kids, I mean, so you're never too old. You know, I get so irritated when people say, oh, he's 85, you know, he's had a good life. Then don't, don't interfere. And I've already told my children, if they have that attitude for me, I'm cutting them out of the will. I want to have a vibrant, healthy brain until I stop breathing. Um, now, on the other spectrum, you know, I want you to think about SPECT when the case is complicated. So if, if it's simple and easy and responds to standard treatments, great. But if it's complicated, um, you know, the youngest patient we've scanned is nine months, someone who had seizure disorders. I think for ADD, you know, I'd be thinking about it at seven or eight. If you've tried a couple of things, they're not working. Um, that that's about the age. I mean, we've certainly done lots of really out of control three and four-year-olds, but what a lot of people don't know is that 30% of three-year-olds look hyperactive. Only about 5% to 10% of four-year-olds look hyperactive. So the first time you can really diagnose it is about four, unless you're a specialist that has a ton of experience with it. There's a question about ADHD and PT. SD, um, how those scans compare, and also can you, from, from the SPECT scan, can you distinguish ADHD from PTSD? So the answer is yes. Um, PTSD, we typically see what we call it a diamond pattern in the brain, that the emotional brain works too hard. And with ADHD, the typical pattern is we see it okay at rest, but it drops with concentration. So we typically do two studies at our clinics. And, and I just want to say this and, and make it as clear as I can that we never make a diagnosis from a spec scan. We always make a diagnosis from a lot of information. We do very detailed clinical histories where we get biological, psychological, social, even spiritual information. And the spiritual information is why do you care? What's your sense of meaning and purpose in the world? Um, and then we do imaging. We also do some targeted neuropsychological testing, and we use all the information to come up with a targeted treatment plan. But um, the, the images by themselves are so valuable because I talked about in the presentation, how do I know what's going on in your brain unless I look? So the classic ADHD powder, pretty okay at rest, it drops in activity with concentration, which means the harder you try, the worse it gets. In PTSD, what we'll often see is too much activity in the limbic or the emotional brain. And so they're generally not hard to distinguish, but if you have ADHD, you have a much higher risk of having PTSD. And one of the reasons, I remember one of my patients once told me, you know, after you started treating me, I'd never walk in downtown Detroit at 2 o'clock in the morning. I used to do that all the time. Um, so the impulsivity can actually put people in more vulnerable situations. On top of which, if you have AD, 
ADD, odds are your mom or dad had it, and they may have impulse control problems or addiction problems, which very commonly run together. And growing up in a traumatic or an abusive home can give you what turns out to be PTSD, real PTSD, but on top of that, you also have ADHD. And just getting your PTSD treated does not take care of the ADD or ADHD symptoms. Um, a lot of questions, well, actually a lot of people identifying with ring of fire ADD. And they want to know best ways to treat it and also diagnose it. Um, obviously through spec scan and lengthy interviews. But if you could just give us a general roundup of Ring of Fire, what it is, how best to treat it through food, exercise, or even medication. So, you know, I actually didn't want to see Ring of Fire when I first started doing imaging because it just didn't make any sense to me based on the literature. Um, but, oh, my goodness, I saw it. And what Ring of Fire is, is when we look at your scan, there's just too much activity everywhere. It's on fire, so that's why it's called uh, the Ring of Fire. And given when we look at scans, we often look at the active scan in that blue-red color scale. It's like, all oh, this red. I did my psychiatric training in Hawaii, and I went to the Kilauea volcano, and it's like these brains just look like the volcano. And so... 80% of the time, ring of fire is made worse with stimulants if you start with stimulants first. So there's too much activity. And what we see, it's almost like ADHD that's magnified. So too many thoughts, really sensitive to noise, sound, uh, clothes, things on your skin. Um, can be very impulsive. Uh, it's like the world comes at you too quickly. And so if you have an overactive brain, it wouldn't make sense to stimulate it. And so what we discovered is we use things to calm it down first. And so things like the supplement GABA, I like a lot. The uh, supplement 5-HTP. From a medication standpoint, we might use an anticonvulsant and then an SSRI. But I'm looking initially for things to calm it down. And then if they still have the attentional component, we might use just a little bit of a tiny dose of, of a stimulant. Um, the case that really highlights Ring of Fire the best for me is my niece, Jennifer. So she came to see me. She was having trouble in school. Her mother was calling me five times a week. They were having a lot of fighting and conflict. And I'm, you know, doing what I'm trained to do. Stimulants they made her worse. Antidepressants didn't help. Behavior therapy wasn't helping. And then um, I tried her on a supplement that contained GABA, 5-HTP, and L-tyrosine. So that combination, and remember, my sister's calling me multiple times every week, and all of a sudden I realize it's four months later, and I'm like, Joanne hasn't called me. And so I called her up, and I'm like, hey, don't you love me anymore? Because I'm one of seven. We're a close family. And she's like, damn, I can't believe how much better Jennifer is. And it was really you know, one of those seminal stories for me that supplements can make a big difference. And 
you know, anybody who paid attention in medical school first year, they remember Hippocrates said, first do no harm. And I just have to tell you, the supplements that we prescribe are a lot less toxic than the medication. Doesn't mean I'm anti-medication because I'm not, but it's like, well, let me try the natural things first, and if they don't work in a couple of months, well, you're still going to have ADD, then I can, you know, then we can talk about medication. Um, for the Ring of Fire, I've also found elimination diets to be just incredibly helpful in our New York clinic. Uh, we have a corporate nutritionist, Erica Kasuli, who's just awesome, and quite frankly, our best testimonials at Amen Clinic food. You know, the food is medicine or food is poison. Um, so that's uh, something we use for Ring of Fire as well. Mm -hmm. One participant asked, why do you use SPECT imaging instead of functional MRI, which is also known to show differences in psychiatric populations, including ADHD? Um, the reason we use SPECT as opposed to fMRI, we've actually done head-to-head -head studies with them. So I did a study at Stanford, and it was really hard to get the fMRI studies on kids. They hate the tubes. They hate the noise. It, it was just not possible um, to do it on a large-scale basis. Um, the other reason I like SPECT is we have a database of 92,000 scans. When we see a SPECT scan, we really understand what it means. And our database is so important to us um, because we have a skill that we know that we understand um, that gives us really great information. People don't understand. They'll go, oh, but the resolution of MRI is better. Yeah, but not fMRI. That resolution is really no better than what we get with SPECT. And we do two studies, one at rest, one with concentration, and we see the different states of the brain at rest and during concentration. fMRI is a difference scan between this moment and that moment. fMRI, it really does change very quickly depending on your emotional state, SPECT is a much more stable scan over time. So if you think of an fMRI as that moment in time, SPECT is more that state of your brain over time, which we have found helpful. 1995, when, F when fMRI was becoming more popular, I was totally convinced we were going to switch from SPECT uh, to fMRI, mostly because of the issue of radiation. Um, because with SPECT, you do get a little radiation about the same as a head CT. So it's a normal medical amount of radiation, but still some, and it freaks some people out. But it has, the science with fMRI has just not progressed, where, you know, maybe there's a hundred of us around the world actively doing SPECT in clinical psychiatric practice. I just don't know of anybody doing fMRI in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. Several parents, it's funny that you brought up the radiation because several parents are concerned about that. They've sort of held back. Um, they just wanted you to address the radiation levels and how safe they might be or not safe. So, of SPECT. So last year, they did 8,000 nuclear medicine procedures on children. So it's not something you do for fun. It's something you do when there's a medical indication. And, I mean, I've had 11 of them. So the radiation level from a SPECT study is exactly the same as a head CT. It's one-third 
of an abdominal CT that's commonly ordered for belly pain. So it's, it's a very routine amount. According to the U.S. government, you know, you can have up to four spec scans a year. We never do that. But, you know, my kids have been scanned. My grandchildren have been scanned. I worry much more about an ineffectively treated psychiatric problem than I do about the radiation. And whenever I go to debates, because uh, I've debated my colleagues a lot about SPECT, they'll always bring up the radiation. And I'll look at them like there's no other medical specialty that would refuse to order a test that could give them clinical information because of the radiation. So they do SPECT heart studies, SPECT bone studies, SPECT lung studies. Um, they do CT scans all the time when it's properly indicated. But because most psychiatrists aren't used to ordering studies, they'll sort of grab onto the issue of radiation. And in my mind, untreated or ineffectively treated psychiatric problems uh, just devastate people's lives. And while we talk about the radiation, we should also talk about the cost. Because a lot of people go, oh, but it costs money. It's usually not um, covered by insurance. That's true. But I always want people to be thinking about, so what does it cost to have a brain that's not effective? What does it cost in tutors, in having to repeat grades, in attorneys, in not being your best? And so if you just see the change in my brain, 37, my brain looks toxic, it's not functioning at its peak, at its peak, and now at 57, it's so much better. Well, if it gives me five more years of effectiveness in my life, I mean, that's really priceless when you think about it. I mean, we're always concerned about cost, and I'm very sensitive to it, uh, which is why I write. So, yes, you can come to the clinic. Our full evaluation is about $3,700. History or nurse psych testing, both scans, the doctor, first follow-up meeting. I mean, there's a lot in that. But I understand not everybody can do that. So I write Healing ADD for $16. I mean, you can really learn a lot about what I know and what you can do. Um, but, but the radiation is a really important thing to talk about. Um, Sandra asks, is there any brain imaging research for twice exceptional kids with ADHD and a certain giftedness, brain giftedness? Is, have you noticed anything in your scans about that? You know, it's a really interesting question. And when we see surprisingly gifted kids, we often see really healthy brains. Um, that have more activity than most, especially in the association areas of the brain. So that would be in the parietal lobes, in the top back part of the brain, and in their lateral temporal lobes. We also see, and this is one of the big things I've learned from imaging, is that their cerebellums often look really healthy. Cerebellum is the back bottom part of the brain. And it is, we used to think of it really involved in coordination, but it's really involved in thought coordination, how quickly you can integrate new information. There's a whole group of papers that have come out recently on the cerebellum and cognition. 
And so it's one of the reasons I'm always recommending coordination exercises for kids that do not put them at risk for brain damage. So this is really important. A lot of ADD kids want to wrestle. They want to box. They want to play football. And I'm like, absolutely not. You have a developing brain. And of course, I'd never say this to an ADD kid. But in my head, I'm thinking you have a, develop, you, you have a developing brain. But it's probably three to five years you're um, friends and never subjected to an injury because it's just going to magnify the ADD. But I really want them doing a lot of coordination work. So dancing, awesome. Table tennis is awesome. Tennis is great. Teaching them to juggle even better, um, to work out their cerebellum on a regular basis. Um, Joanna asks, do SPECT scans show differences between ADHD and various learning disabilities? You know, what SPECT scans do is they give us a sense on what learning disability vulnerabilities they might have. For example, for people who have reading issues, they'll often have low activity in the left temporal lobe. For people who have nonverbal learning disabilities, so more social skill issues, they'll often have decreases in the right temporal lobe. For people who have the Erlen syndrome, have you guys ever done anything on the Erlen syndrome? No. You totally should. You should either have me do it or have Helen Erlen do it. It's rampant in the ADD population. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. Yeah. It's a visual processing problem. And kids and adults are sensitive to certain colors of the light spectrum. And so what they'll complain about are headaches, um, depth perception issues. And you see it when you go to the mall because people have trouble getting on escalators. You know, most of us just walk on. People who have the Erlen syndrome, they're at the bottom and they're anxious about getting on and they sort of watch each step and with some anxiety they get on. They're not coordinated. They have trouble catching balls. Um, when they read, they get headaches, they get tired, and words and letters move around on the page. And what, what is just so thinking fascinating is put colored filtered lenses on them and all of that normalizes. Their headaches go away, they can start reading uh, easy, they don't get headaches, their depth perception is better. They also have problems at night because lights really bother them. And I have this really wonderful patient who came to Amen Clinics with ADD, anxiety, and depression symptoms. We figured out she had the Erlen syndrome because on scans, we see too much activity in the visual processing uh, centers of the brain. And she you know, had like six of the eight symptoms on our checklist. And when she put on colored filtered lenses just right for her, all of a sudden, all of the symptoms went away. And for about mm -hmm. three weeks, she's just like so happy. And then she came in, and she's, she just starts crying on my couch. And I'm like, what? What happened? And she said, I feel so sad because when I was 12 years old, she's now 42, I was a prodigy guitar player. But I could never mm -hmm. learn to read music because the notes would dance on the page. And at the age of 12, I took my guitar and broke it, and I never played again. And now at mm -hmm. 42, She's mourning the loss of what could have been. Now, does that mean I should put her on Prozac? Of course not. 
it means we should do some really good psychological work. And now she can be excited that she doesn't have to continue to suffer. But um, Erlen syndrome. So for those of you who are listening that you're like, oh my God, that's me, or oh my God, that's my child, um, you can go to Erlen, I-R-L-E-N.com, and learn more about it. We all know about ADDers and sleep challenges, but can long-term sleep challenges damage the brain? Would SPECT show the differences? Well, what SPECT damage. would show on long-term sleep problems is lower overall activity in the brain. Um, we clearly see sleep apnea damages the brain and actually puts you at greater risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, that if kids get an hour less sleep at night than their peers, they have an increased risk of suicide. Um, and so in my books, uh, I always dedicate a significant part of the book to sleep issues because left untreated, it's just a nightmare. And ADHD kids and adults, their sleep cycle tends to be shifted so that they tend to go to bed later because they can't settle down their mind and then waking them up in the morning is sort of like trying to wake the dead uh, you know having my own ADD children which I talk about in the book um, I, I mean I had to stay home from work for a year because my wife and my son were fighting so much because she had ADD he had ADD nobody could get to school on time and uh, you know what I figured out is you know, I gave him his medicine half an hour before he was supposed to get up um, just to get his mm -hmm. brain kicked into gear. Um, that can be helpful as well. Uh, melatonin mm -hmm. at night can be helpful as well. And there's some good science behind using that in ADHD kids. One parent asks, what about a diagnosis of bipolar in ADHD? Would a brain scan prove beneficial to diagnosing these? Conditions. It would prove beneficial to be helpful in the process, right? Of course, you always have to talk to people. Um, ring of fire is, um, when I see a ring of fire, I'm thinking bipolar. Um, but through the years, um, I've modified that view. If I, if, I, if I see ring of fire and someone has bipolar disorder in the family, I'm very concerned about it. But Ring of fire can also be because somebody has Lyme disease. And I've seen that multiple times, actually just in a little boy recently. Uh, ring of fire can also be caused by some sort of autoimmune disorder or by some sort of allergy or inflammation. So when I see ring of fire, yes, I will screen people for this thing called panda syndromes. Um, so the brain's negative reaction to strep infections or Lyme. Um, and I'm going to go hunt down why. And then I'm going to start with elimination diet and supplements. Um, and I'm going to follow that person really closely. If there's a history in the family of substance abuse or bipolar disorder, I'm going to be watching closely. So what I often think of with the scans is they really help me in so many different ways. They help me decrease stigma, increase compliance, give me targets to go after with the supplements and medication. Mm -hmm. And then it really helps me think through what are the things I need to do 
for this patient. So I never look at a scan and go, oh, this is your diagnosis. You know, sort of my problem with some of my colleagues, they expect the scan to make a diagnosis. And I went, well, that's really stupid. You have to talk to people. You always put a clinical test in the context of the person's life. But when you mm -hmm. do that, they're just so powerful. How is SPECT different from neurofeedback brain scans? Um, well, neurofeedback is a treatment. Um, so, so probably the, mm -hmm. the more scientifically accurate question is how is SPECT different than quantitative EEG? So quantitative EEG, <laughs> where we're looking at the electrical signals of the brain. And I actually did quantitative EEG before I did SPECT and loved it. And I love neurofeedback and find it can be really helpful. Um, one looks at blood flow and activity. The other looks at electrical activity. And ultimately, the clinic of the future, and I like to think of ours that way, will do both SPECT and QEEG. And in three out of our six clinics, we do both. But we rely more heavily. We like SPECT better because we get a really good look at the undersurface of the brain, so the underside of your frontal lobes, the underside of your temporal lobes, your cerebellum, where with quantitative EEG, you don't get a good look at those areas at all. Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, I like it when I can get both in my patients because you know, if your heart had problems, they're not going to do one study. They're going to look at the blood flow to your heart. They're going to look at the electrical activity of your heart. And I think we should have that same level of reverence and respect for evaluating the brain. Um, how does exercise, what have you seen in your scans from a person who you've scanned before having, ex, before engaging in an exercise routine and after? And how, um, does, how does exercise sort of relate to managing ADHD symptoms? Well, you know, you just have to look at Michael Phelps, uh, you know, the most famous Olympian in history, who was diagnosed and treated for ADD. His mother talks about that openly. And at sixth grade, he didn't want to take his medicine anymore. And he really self-medicated with exercise. That exercise is, is awesome and amazing. It can be helpful, and it'll decrease symptoms. Um, it's just hard in an ADD family to do it consistently without forgetting. Um, the studies on exercise, there's actually a study from Japan, a SPEC study showing better cerebellar and frontal lobe function after playing table tennis. Um, exercise has so many benefits. I'm just a huge fan. Um, I've not done you know, a specific big study on exercise. My sense is when you do it in concert with the other brain healthy things we recommend, you literally can make your brain look younger and prettier. Uh, in my book, Use Your Brain to Change Your Age, I talk about Andy, who came to see me from Michigan, because his daughter had ADD, and he said, well, I want to get scanned, too, and he had a terribly toxic brain, because he was drinking way too much, and he was overweight, and I saw him 11 years later, he'd stopped drinking, he lost 100 pounds, he got this concept I call brain envy, where he's really caring about himself, he exercised every day for 1,743 days, and his brain looked much younger than it had 11 years earlier, much healthier. And, and that's what I'm excited about. I mean, ultimately, it's the mission of my life is to teach people you really can change your brain 
when you do, you change your life. And people who have ADD, you can dramatically decrease the need for medication if you put the right brain-healthy habits in your life. Doesn't mean you won't need it, but odds are you're going to need a lot less of it. Well, we'll have to end it there. Thanks, Dr. Amen, for your expertise. It was enlightening for all of us. I know it was for me. So thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks to everybody who listened. Have a good day, everyone. For more Attitude Podcast and information on living well with attention deficit, visit attitudemag.com. That's A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E-M-A-G.com.